0: Sean Finnegan and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. We've all heard plenty of stories of Trinitarians who began questioning their received teaching and eventually become Unitarian. However, today we're bringing you a story that's a little different. My guest is Rick Naviello, who held a biblical Unitarian view of Jesus for decades before attending evangelical churches and really trying to believe in the Trinity. He did everything he could to convince himself it was true. He met with pastors, he studied the pro-Trinity books, and he really tried to conform to mainstream Christian expectations. He thought he had conceded until, well... I don't want to give away the punchline. But let's just say he's more convinced of his biblical Unitarian faith now than ever. And church history was involved. That's all I'm going to say. So here now is episode 518, Tried to Believe in the Trinity, with Rick Naviello. Welcome, Rick, to Restitutio. So glad to talk with you today. Thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, Sean, for having me. I appreciate the invitation.
0: So your story is a little different. You had grown up as a Unitarian, and a biblical Unitarian, believing in just the deity of the Father and that Jesus is the Messiah, human Messiah. And then you decided to take an extended tour into the Trinity and to research it and learn about it. You really tried to believe in it. Tell me about why you did that. What was going through your head?
1: Just to back up a little bit, there was a time in my life in my early childhood where I was raised Roman Catholic, although for my adult life, yes, I was Unitarian from the time I turned 18. I went through the, uh, I call them the three C's of the uh, rites of being a Roman Catholic, the confession and the communion and confirmation process. Um, Recited the creed every week, uh, the Nicene Creed, they call it the Apostles' Creed. I remember it, a lot of it to this day, still in my head. At the time, I didn't know what I was saying, came to find out later what exactly what all that was about. I do recall a time when I was, I don't know, maybe 10 to 12 years old. I was sitting in uh, our grandparents' uh, dining room. We're having a a spaghetti dinner, I guess it was. And we did that occasionally. And my grandmother had a picture of Jesus. And and I think this this is uh, familiar to many people. It's one where uh, it's assumed he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God, looking up with the light shining down from heaven. And I was staring at it rather intently. And I remember my grandmother distinctly saying, you know how that is? And before I can say anything, she answered the question, that's God you're looking at. I was thinking about what she said, and I don't think I expressed it, but I definitely thought it. And the question I asked myself was, well, then who's he praying to? (laughs) Did
0: you say you were 10 years old when you asked that?
1: It was around that time. Yeah, it was 10 to 12. I I can't pinpoint the time. It's a
0: great question.
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it is. I think it dispels a lot of things. So that's... Where I was as a, a young child. When I was 18 years old, I got involved with a, a Unitarian organization called The Way International, and I was involved with that for many years. So, when the question was posed to me that Jesus Christ is not God, of course, my response was, well, Of course, he's not. It, it, that whole idea was very foreign to me, uh, even being in a Roman Catholic uh, setting. There's a lot that happened in those uh, 31 years that I was involved with that organization. I don't want to get into all of it now. And, was involved with the Way Corps. I was a leader for many years. But for reasons that uh, hit us very personally, profoundly personally, back in 2017, I believe it was, we decided to uh, part ways with the Way International. But we didn't go anywhere. We just kind of were drifting out in the open, but for a while. And during that time, uh, I felt freer. The uh, constraints were taken off because while you're with them, you don't look anywhere else. Basically, you're supposed to just keep yourself fed with whatever's coming out from their central location i looked at other unitarian organizations and the only biggest ones i could find of course were jehovah's witnesses and uh, the mormons and those are a little bit controlling I-, I found out but and interestingly enough during that time i was in this prayer state where i was desiring to get back and into kind of the mix of things spiritually. Uh, with the Bible. Uh, I was out on a walk in our neighborhood, and uh, I see these two young gentlemen get out of a, a car, and they have uh, the white button shirt with the black slacks and the tie, and I shouted out across to them, are you guys Latter-day Saints? And they said, yeah, how'd you guess? You know? And I said, okay, let's talk. We uh, proceeded to walk through the neighborhood, and we're talking about a lot of things. I'm I'm complimenting them, what they're doing. They're young men in their early 20s, maybe, uh, who are doing something for God, and I and I thanked them for that. And then it came to a point where I was asking them, okay, I know you're not, we're not here to talk about what I'm talking about. I think you want to talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, so that began the, the uh, introduction into uh, their faith, so to speak. And they invited me to read the Book of Mormon. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So uh, just a quick, quick story on that. Uh, after several visits from them over the next couple of months, I read about a third of the Book of Mormon. The strong sense that I got from it was that it, it was made up. Their story is that it came from golden plates uh, from heaven and the uh, Moroni angel. Our messenger from God gave it to Joseph Smith. But anyway, so we part ways. didn't find that it was compelling. Although it's a great story, if you know anything about it, it's a fantastic story, if it was true. Moved on from there, uh, took a step back. I don't know what point exactly, but I began to realize that most of the Christian world, I don't know what percentage it is, is based in Trinitarian doctrine, no matter what branch of Christianity, whether it's from Catholic or Protestant or Methodist or Evangelical. Christianity. Uh, so I began to ask other questions. So, how can so many Christians be so wrong on such a huge topic? If it is wrong, what's the catch? Why are they beholden to this uh, doctrine, this theology? I began to get into a little more why is it so popular? How does it work? I started looking at Messianic Jews, uh, Jews for Jesus. Surely they wouldn't be holding to the creed. They have Jewish background. That's blasphemy. But I go on their websites and that's their statement of beliefs. uh, And they are on board. So there you go. Uh, There was a video I watched of uh, a couple of gentlemen. The title of it was Jesus, Man or God. It's like, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe they have something that's Unitarian. It sounds kind of controversial. And I watched it. There are scholars. It's a kind of popular Messianic Jew. His name is Amir Sarfati. And he interviewed a Dr. Seth Postel, uh, who I guess is somewhat renowned in that world of Messianic uh, Judaism. But the interview was all about the Christophanies from the Old Testament and the proof texts of how how Jesus appeared uh, throughout the Old Testament and Genesis and Exodus and onward. Uh, But it ended with a uh, capping in Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 13, where, as you know, it says, if we confess Jesus as Lord, and then in verse 13 it says, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and they tied that verse back to Joel 2.32, and then it's Yahweh. Uh, So they used that tie-in to say, when you confess Jesus as Lord, it means you're confessing him as Yahweh and they were giddy about it. They were like, oh, look what we found. Eh." They were very happy to present this research. That got my attention. I'm like, oh boy, am I in trouble? You know, even the Jews for Jesus and Messianic Jews are creedists. And uh, just a side note there, a short while ago, last year's 2022 um, UCA conference, uh, Dr. Jerry presented something on that exact section of scripture on the Romans 10, 9, and 13 uh recontextualization of joel 232 i have to go back and, and watch and listen again but i thought it was a uh, very telling looking at it from a hebraic lens rather than through the greek philosophical lens which is the mistake of the uh, ages so th- that awareness drove me even further and deeper with more urgency to get a move on this so that's where i started to uh, purchase books uh there's um simply Trinity, which, uh, you know, i thought i'd start there because it goes back to the basics apparently uh then there's matthew barrett and then there's um the trinity an introduction by scott swain i guess is an associate of matthew barrett and then this is a more of a scholarly uh, apparently used for a graduate level students the quest for the trinity uh this one was even weirder but if you don't mind i like to cite some of the samples uh that i prepared out of these books uh this is from Uh, Simply Trinity. When we talk about the Trinity or simplicity of God, the one who is simple or simply Trinity, we mean something far more intrinsic to the very being of our triune God Himself. When we say God acts as one, we assume He is one. Since His very nature or essence is one, He acts as one, not merely cooperating, but performing a single act that accords with the triune God's single will. Yes, there are three persons but since it is the same divine essence subsisting in each these three persons always perform the same act well that sounds pretty neat so this one is from the trinity in introduction there is nothing that the father is that the son and the spirit are not except for being the father there is nothing that the son is that the father and the spirit are not except for being the son and there is nothing that the Spirit is that the Father and the Son are not, except for being the Spirit. So, oh, wow, that's a neat concept, but uh, is it based in Scripture? And then the quest for the Trinity. This got into a lot of the uh, origins with, with the Church Fathers. This is from Gregory of Nazianzus. So it says, we have, uh, we have one God because there is a single Godhead. Though there are three objects of belief, they derive from the single whole and have reference to it. They are not sundered in will or divided in power. You cannot find there any of the properties inherit in things divisible. The Godhead exists undivided in things divided. It is as if there were a single intermingling of light which existed in three mutually connected suns. S-U-N-S. So again, wow, that, a lot of brain power to come up with that section of, of uh, thought. So I, I took this all in. I tried it on. I tried to make it work in my head and the the point was that i i wanted to see if i can trace this back so i started kind of forward in time you know mid 500s or whatever uh and worked my way backwards after this point so i looked up certain works on church fathers on the incarnation uh by athanasius read a little bit of origin of course he was eh, kind of back and forth i guess then i read justin martyr the works, all the works, the, the apologies, the uh, the dialogue with Trifo. The, there's other works where he condemns, uh, I guess, Greek mythology uh, as well up to the, the martyrdom. And I uh, just want to pull this little excerpt out of the uh, dialogue with Trifo. And this is Justin speaking. And I said, as you wish, Trifo, I shall come to these proofs which you seek in the fitting place. But now you will permit me first to recount the prophecies which i wish to do in order to prove that christ is called both god and lord of hosts so okay so there's there's more there and it is rich with that all throughout that very long work uh that part there the dialogue, dialogue with Tripo, it is lots of language uh even there's regard for plato i find in that particular work as well i think it was said of justin that uh, he said up Plato, regarded him as most holy Plato. I think I read it in one, one place. But so a lot, lot of mixing going on at that time. So we also, as part of this effort, along with me studying these online things that I got for the church fathers, I convinced my family, my wife, that we should attend a church, a regular evangelical church. So we we, we did that and we dove in full bore, uh, started attending weekly. I shut off all familiar sources of theology that I was familiar with coming from a Unitarian background. I didn't want to hear any of it. I wanted to give this a full, honest shot Anytime I went into the church. And of course, it's almost weekly. They bring up the Trinity or the deity of, of Jesus. They have it out front most, if not all weeks, whether it's in the prayer or whether it's part of the teaching or they insert it. Uh, usually it was the head pastor teaching at this church. Also, we started to have a small group in our home with uh, church members because we wanted to make connections. I wound up being the appointed leader. They were forming new groups, and they did it in a way that was where all the new people met together at the church every Sunday in big meetings. Then we broke down the smaller meetings. And then at the very end, you get to choose who you want to have your group with. So we started meeting in, in our house, and over the course of time, it was decided they all pointed at me as being the one that should be the uh, leader. So I didn't want to do that. That wasn't my intent. It was just to form relationships with people, make connections. I almost joined the worship team as a drummer. I have a little drumming ability, so I wanted to put that to use, but it didn't quite work out. So I was going all in. I, I wanted to be part of the show. I even wrote uh, the pastors and said, hey, I have a background as as being a minister in some regards. Uh, so if there's something I can do for you, uh, help out with stuff. I, I was on board. I didn't hear back from them. But, but anyway, so I, I was putting myself out there.
0: Well, let me me pause you just for a moment. When you read these quotations earlier from these three books describing and explaining the Trinity, this was during the same period that you were going to the church, or this was before you went to the church?
1: This was when we started had already started going to the church, these books here in particular.
0: Okay, Um, so having read these books, you found them convincing?
1: I found I wasn't making judgment yet on them. I didn't understand a lot of it. I was kind of keeping an open mind about it.
0: So I'm just curious, like, as you're going to this church, are you thinking to yourself, I have a worked out theory or model of God that makes sense and is consistent internally, and I'm comfortable with exegesis in light of any text or whatever. Or if you were just sort of like hoping that with time this would all make sense.
1: I think I was in more of the second category where I wasn't convinced of the doctrine of the Trinity. I was learning it to see how it works. And if it did indeed make sense biblically, exegetically, then I was willing to believe it. But I wasn't there yet in my
0: mind. All right. All right. Please continue.
1: Thank you. Part of being a life group leader was the life group leaders met with or the pastor who was over the life group leaders met with the life group leaders periodically. And I met with him the initial meeting um, lasts about hours, just basically get to know each other. How do you feel? How it's going? Any questions? And at the end of that meeting, I intended to let him know. And I did my background that I came from a Unitarian uh, background. At the time, I was struggling to understand the deity of Christ. Uh, And I told him what I was doing. I was reading books. I was studying church fathers. And the first thing out of his mouth, and I guess this is a common response when one goes to a Trinitarian, especially a pastor, he said, well, if Jesus isn't God and only God can take away sin, then we're still in sin. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he was the sacrifice for sin. So he was the end sacrifice to end all sacrifices, uh, the one. So to my mind, I'm thinking, so, so all the animals in the Old Testament became God? I don't know. I was still kind of struggling with with things like that. That was the first answer. And he, it was a great meeting. He was not judgy. Uh, maybe some years ago I uh, would have been kicked out, I don't know, for even doubting the Trinity. But he was very respectful and kind and endeavored to help me understand things. So I met with him a little further, maybe a month or so after that, and he wanted to meet specifically to talk about theology, as he put it, uh, the topic of the Trinity. So I don't remember much about that meeting. I didn't write a whole lot down, but it was uh, a lot of um, basic things about Jesus, like uh, the hypostatic union and the two natures, eternal generation. I
0: can't That's believe he did that. He that. A lot of times eternal generation is sort of like the uncle nobody talks about. To right. his credit, I think is great. I mean, if you're going to believe in the Trinity, might as well get into eternal generation
1: yes it the meeting ended and he told me himself he didn't really fully understand it either he's just going along because that's what the church believes he said what helps him understand the concept of the trinity of god being one and existing in three persons is that if you think of it like a a family a family is a unit the family consists of three persons a father a mother and then a child that makes a family so to him that helps conceptualize and understand the trinity uh, but it's really not a one-to-one comparison. And I kind of knew it at that time, too. But it helped him understand. So that's that's how the meeting ended. So he didn't have a whole lot, I feel, to contribute to convince me of that. But I still I carried on. I moved on.
0: Well, you weren't um, resistant or combative, right? You were more nope. trying to find a way to make this work because you were happy at this church?
1: We we liked going. It's a big church, about 500 uh, attendees per service. They had two every Sunday. We liked the teachings because they were very specific, kind of a gut or honesty check, very strong message uh, to live a life of Christianity, of being a Christ follower. They were pretty serious about it. So I, I kind of craved that too in many ways to correct me and to make sure I'm aligning up with scriptures. But uh, then every time the attorney was brought up, it was kind of like, you know, I'm still kind of nervous ticking <laughs> because it was one of those things still is so embedded in my mind. And my wife patiently went along with me and. And during this whole process, she never budged. She was stalwart on what she knew. She was raised in a way international. And uh, so to her, there was n- nothing to question. So but she kind of allowed me to to do this, to sort it out. So, yeah, we were happy going there for the most part. So, yeah, the prayers, they were interesting because sometimes when the pastor's up on stage praying, it would be, you don't know, what part of the Trinity they're praying to, they would switch in mid-prayer. It seems, uh, Father, thank you for this and that that you came down and died on the cross and so yeah so that part was still a problem for me but during this time too I would find myself even defending Trinitarianism at times with my wife so we got into lively discussions I was kind of an apologist trying to understand I was trying to understand I was still giving it a shot I don't have to understand it all but if I can see that it went all the way back to the beginning then um, I'm open for that moving on later we were on vacation and we we're driving somewhere and my wife still full aware that I'm on this journey uh said hey do you wanna while we're driving listen to a podcast on, on church history I was like okay you found something so let's to go play it and it started coming out and the the, the familiar restitudio entry music what came on <laughs> I was like wait no, and I knew about your podcast. My brother-in-law had introduced me to it a couple of years ago. Uh, but again, I, I was shutting off all pro Unitarian access into my brain. So I said, turn it off. I don't I want to hear it yet. And, and this is where it gets interesting. After that, it was sometime after that where I was nearing the end of my search as far as early church history myself and and, and works that are still out there, which is incredible. And the two left that I was planning to read was First Clement and the Didache. In 1st Clement, I'm like reading this, and this is like probably late first century, right? Maybe early second, uh, a, a direct kind of trainee of the apostles, and I'm reading, and there's nothing there that's calling out, Jesus as God or eternal, and as a matter of fact, very separate, very subordinate, 42 verses one and two, that the gospel that we receive, Clement, and talking to the Corinthians. We receive it from the apostles, who received it from Jesus Christ, who received it from God. <laughs> so you can see definitely a, a, an order, a cascading order descending from uh, the Father. And then in chapter 58, verse 2, uh, it's the only time that I could find where the triad, in a sense, is mentioned throughout the entire book of 60 or so chapters. It mentions God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in the same verse, but not in the sense that they're the same. It doesn't even say Father, it says God, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. And then the Didache, this was the clincher, Jesus Christ, the servant of God. That's it. There is nothing there in that short work, albeit, but it's still very early work. Jesus Christ has been demoted as the servant of God, in a sense.
0: And we actually in find that way. in the book of Acts as well.
1: Yes, exactly right. That same so phrase, it's just, that, right.
0: the servant of God. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, so I thought this is uh, this is good enough for me. I'm done. Uh, so all that all that noise, reading all these books, going through these early church history writings of uh, the church fathers, it was it was gone. Silence. I had enough. I was satisfied in my quest. Uh, now it's time to rebuild. <laughs> what I had taken down. And then I was ready. I was ready to look at different sources of, of, of Unitarian theology. And that's where I began uh, listening and watching the early church history series. And it was episode seven, but I was gripped. It was gripping. This was our nightly TV watching. Uh, we were doing away with uh, any anything else this i was happy and, and very satisfied to to watch these presentations and what did it for me all that was convincing but what was the the very last clincher i guess was philo of alexandria uh the hellenistic jew who lived around pre first a little post first century 20 bc i think the 40 a.d so he predated christianity so he's over there in egypt a philosopher trying to bridge greek philosophy usually Plato with the Bible.
0: That was the name of the game in those days. I mean, if you were doing scholarship, that's what you were doing. You were trying to take the leading, uh, if I could call it, scientific view of the world and how the world works and and how the world began and and how to lead the good life, which at that time is Plato. They call it Middle Platonism. And, And you're trying to work that into your own stories, your own perspective that you're coming from as... A Jewish person, he, that would be you know the books of Moses, the Old Testament, but especially the Torah. He's trying to make those two things fit together. That's something.
1: It is. I was quite appalled by by that. That this was, like as you're saying, a thing bridging something that's definitely pagan in its origins with the monotheistic Bible. <laughs> it was alarming to me that it, it seemed he he's the one maybe that not coined the phrase but identified the Logos as the only begotten Son. And then this piece, and I think this was a quote that you had posted on there, it says that in the same manner, God being his own light is perceived by himself alone, nothing and no other being cooperating or assisting him of being at all able to contribute to pure comprehension of his existence. But these men have arrived at the real truth who form their ideas of God from God, of light from light. And being a Roman Catholic, anybody who is familiar with the creed, those words are almost verbatim in the creed. And to me, that was like, did they steal that from Philo and put it in the creed? And I just was fascinated by that because did he have a direct influence on those early church fathers? And it it begged the question. And to me, that was enough evidence that almost like a smoking gun that this is, or one of many, I'm sure you know, also thought should follow, be a, a posthumous contributor to the creed. Were Philo's teachings and other Greek philosophical ideas like Gnosticism so prevalent in the late first century that John felt the need to write things like, I, I look at the, the prologue of, of uh, the gospel of John and calling the word God, The logos and the word was god later it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that's the trinitarian uh proof text here it is right but i don't think that philo's logos became flesh so in a gnostic thought that heavenly beings divine beings cannot be flesh but jesus was definitely flesh and i'm thinking this is john's point taking the concept of the logos which was so prevalent and correctly applying it to the gospel message, since they're passing this around anyway, it seemed that yes, he was flesh; he became flesh; he is the Word of God; he represents God. But he became flesh; he started at a certain point as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it's just kind of an initial thought I had. But but one of the things, one of the great things I enjoy being getting involved with the Unitarian movement is very specific statements like John 17, three, where it says, you father are the only true God. And I think of that as an epic statement. And I say epic statement, I'm involved, what I do for work, I'm a, a functional tester, a user representative for helping to build software. It's Agile is a methodology that's used in project management for building software and to help organize the program and keep it moving, there's what's called an epic statement, basically what what the business needs the software to do. So everything has to fit underneath this broad, overreaching, epic statement. And I think of John 17, 3 as that in regards to Jesus Christ and all things God, that even Jesus said, you, Father, are the only true God. The Father is God alone. So everything's got to fit underneath that big overarching concept. And so what I'm left with here is the question that I asked myself back in my grandmother's dining room, who's he praying to? <laughs> Who is he praying to? I guess to wrap up here, you know, I, I intend to to continue doing things. Uh, I know there's other resources out there. I'd like to investigate and dig out this biblical archeology, span remove the layers of sediment that have become uh, the Orthodox uh, Christian landscape. And that's what people see. But if you, peel away the layers. You peel away all these things that have been layered on, have been baked in, that have reached a critical mass. I was listening to a podcast yesterday from Dean Cain where he went over why is uh, Trinitarian so mainstream. I think it was back in February. Uh, but he used that idea of critical mass. It reached critical mass, and it's there. It's 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 not going to go away because it's so prevalent. Uh, so one has to have a desire and an intent to get in and, and dig away and once you see it, it's like, you know, pulling back curtains. It doesn't exist way back when. When you look at the Bible, I said it before, yeah, through the Greek philosophical lens. Yeah, you're, you're going to find stuff that would fit within that. And I think, as you said, the grid, if you put the grid over of the creed over the Bible, you can make it fit. However, if you look at it through the Hebraic lens, the customs and the, the terminology and the figures and the, as it was written and as it was understood by the Hebrews who wrote the Bible, then it makes sense. Then these things fall into place. And you know which one is the true way to look at the Bible? Through a post kind of Greek philosophical backwards or look at it from how it was written. And I think there's a lot to learn there uh, in that regard. I love what you're doing. I love what the UCA is doing. That's a cause can get behind. I did walk away from, I believe, what was my calling years ago as a leader in Christianity. And I didn't have anything to fall back on at the time I didn't know, so uh I do want to help promote and grow this movement, this alliance and whatever I can do. I don't know what that would be but but it's a truthful cause that I can get behind and help move forward that journey I think I learned a lot. I think I could use a lot of things that I experienced in my mind that I can put the work in a good good way that's that's useful to promote unitarian uh, I think we exchange one of our emails it was um you're ready for a Reformation that is time for that and you know these days maybe there's not a castle door to nail the thesis to we we have a gajillion of them in the form of the internet it's uh, just how can we make the most noise to get a, attention to grab people's attention to see that there's there's options out there uh and that survey you sent to me there are people that don't buy it They're just going because that's what they did. So hopefully we can get out in front and make some noise.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let me go back to your quest. You did a really interesting reverse quest, a reverse historical investigation. I, I found that account so fascinating to hear. And what struck me about it, Rick, was how strange it was. Like, why were you doing church history? Why weren't you just doing exegesis? Why weren't you just looking at interpretations of verses,
1: Well, I guess I wanted to learn the theology in terms of how it was built and how it is understood by those today. So I felt reading these books would help me do that, to give it a fair shot, not to go from a pure exegetical, and I'm not a scholar by any means, so I kind of rely maybe on scholarly works. So I wanted to see their side of the argument. Uh, completely
0: and were these books uh, the three you mentioned were they mostly arguing from just like logic or did they did they mention a lot of like his, historical figures and quotes and that sort of thing
1: they did yes okay. uh, all so maybe, I would say,
0: maybe they yeah. kind of like steered you to the direction of like hey let's look at church history some more I don't know it just seems like a weird thing to do I would do it too but like most people wouldn't so <laughs> that's what I'm trying to get at
1: It was just an idea I had. So I followed it.
0: Yeah. Okay. I remember uh, just so vividly when I was taking a a church history class in um, my master's program and the professor was so embarrassed (laughs) because he's like, I think he was LCMS, although he never said he was Lutheran church, Missouri synod. So like the, the more conservative branch of Lutherans, he was some sort of Lutheran, but he seemed like a really conservative fellow and he uh, he went through the lecture on the 4th century and like the, the creeds and the, the councils. And it was just like, he was visibly uncomfortable. And I remember looking at him and being like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, because like he believes that what they arrived at was true and godly. And then he has like, the actual historical narrative of the chaos, the backbiting, the politicking, the persecution. There's a real uh, cognitive dissonance there between, you know, this is this glorious truth that sounds so nice when we say it in church and like just the insane ungodly behavior that led to produce that creed.
1: That's very interesting because Christians were persecuted in the first few centuries by the government, but then Christians were persecuted by Christians after that. uh, After uh, Nicaea and Constantine, that the ones who rebelled against the established doctrine were. Yeah, so you look at where the truth is and who has the truth, and it's usually those being persecuted, maybe. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let me ask you about your wife. How did she react when you changed back to believing Unitarianism instead of Trinitarianism?
1: It was not expected. She was like basically indifferent, maybe. <laughs> she was like, okay, she was letting me do my thing at time she was tolerating my little project and so when i said i'm ready to go back and let's uh, call the uh, the fellowship coordinators that we were previously attending we just kind of dropped them for a year and they were very they're very gracious we had them over for dinner and said okay we're ready ready to uh, get back to your home but but yeah she was just kind of went along okay here we're doing the next thing
0: okay What's your situation now? Are you are you back in the Way International or are you with a different group or what's your current situation?
1: I am not back with Way International. This group is kind of made up of those who had been with Way International, so that's who we are with. It's loosely controlled. It's not this centralized organization. It's it's they let the fellowships do what they want basically and if you want to go to the website or they have conferences throughout the year at different locations then you're free to attend or not. So we kind of like that setup. There's a lot of liberties that are not under control.
0: Yeah. So you you wouldn't want to go back to the more controlling environment because you would come out of that. So you don't want to go back into it, but you do want to have community. So are you able to attend like home church meetings on a regular basis? Yeah, once a week. Well, anything else you want to share about your journey? I, I think it's utterly fascinating uh, to hear somebody like try so hard to believe in the Trinity <laughs> and not be able to do it. I did. <laughs> I
1: really tried. But mm, in the end, I got the thumbs down. So yeah, uh, there's nothing really else. Um, I enjoy the time to share these things. Hopefully, I can come up with more findings, or I'm looking forward to getting into more of the podcasts not only yours, uh, I listen to others too, the Trinities from Dale Tuggy, the Biblical Unitarian, Dustin Smith. So all those are enjoyable. and looking forward to getting into more into more subjects and, and building up a knowledge that uh, I feel is necessary to have in this day and time.
0: Yeah. Very good. Well, thanks for talking with me. All right. I appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings this interview to an end. What would you think? Come on over to restitudio.org and find episode 518, Try to Believe in the Trinity with Rick Naviello, and leave your questions and thoughts there. Well, we got a new review on Apple Podcasts. User KC3273 wrote under the title Longtime Listener, Love this podcast. Sean covers a variety of topics that will get you thinking more deeply about scripture, theology, and how to live well as a Christian today. I recommend it to all my friends. Well, thanks so much for that five-star rating and very kind review. It's so encouraging to hear, and it really does help others to find the podcast when people search for Christian theology, or other keywords that relate to this podcast, the search results will show up a little higher if we have more ratings and especially reviews. So thanks so much. Well, I just wanted to let you know that I'll be presenting at the UCA conference on the title, The Deity of Christ from a Greco-Roman Perspective. And I look forward to sharing more with you about that research project, and what I found reading the story of Jesus in light of Greco-Roman theology to answer the question, how would converts to Christianity talk about Jesus? And if they said Jesus was God or a God, what would they mean by that? So I'll be posting that paper shortly, probably very soon, and then I will be putting out that episode very soon on restitutio by the way don't know if you know this but on the restitutio website there is a tab called articles in which i have my more scholarly articles as well as some shorter pieces that are just more bloggy if you are interested if you're a reader and if you're looking for properly footnoted resources that's the place to go so take a look at that got lots of papers there i write i write a minimum of one scholarly paper a year And have been doing that for quite a number of years now. Also, I've got two interviews recorded with Andrew Perryman, the British scholar that I'm itching to release. Although he doesn't identify as a Unitarian, he lays out a case against the preexistence of Christ in the epistles of Paul. It's phenomenal, and we do two episodes, one episode just going through all these different verses that sometimes people use to make a case that Jesus preexisted in Paul's epistles. And in the second episode, we cover Philippians 2, 6 through 11 and really dig into the meat of what does it mean to be in the form of God or the form of a God in the context of the first century. So stay tuned for that. I can tell you they were amazing interviews. You're going to love this, and I can't recommend his book enough. It's called In the Form of a God. He's doing great work. If you're a theologically-minded person who's interested in the whole debate on preexistence and these particular texts, then uh, I, I highly recommend getting his book Well, that's about it for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitudio.org. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.